This is NiceAce Now, your source for real-time and on-demand professional learning designed specifically with the independent school educator in mind. A podcast of interviews, seminars, and conference talks to listen to whenever and wherever you like. Brought to you by the New York State Association of Independent Schools. I'm George Swain. In this keynote address at the Tri-State Heads Conference in November of 2017, Yale University professor Timothy Snyder discusses his newest book, On Tyranny, 20 Lessons from the 20th Century, to help us better understand the world in which we live today. Okay, thank you very much for, for joining me this morning. I know that there are other very nice things that you can do because as soon as I got here, I started to do some of them. I went on a hike, um, I, w I walked by the cliff, I saw a family of deer. I don't know if anyone else has seen deer since you've, since you've been here. And in, in a sense, that's the essence of the, the, the argument or the case that I wanna make to you that that our teaching, our teaching broadly construed, is about direct experiences which are themselves inherently political, which is also by way of saying um, thank you for doing what you do, and if what I say can add any value to what you do, then that will be greatly appreciated and, and thanks enough to me. As Gina was kind enough to mention, the reason that I was invited to talk to you is that about a year ago, I composed a list of 20 lessons from the 20th century, which were my attempt to apply what I think I understand from the darker parts of the 20th century, of which I'm a student, to our current predicaments in the United States. This then became a little book, a political pamphlet really, called On Tyranny. So what I'm gonna do in the next 45 minutes, hour or so, is talk you through those 20 lessons, um, what the book is, where I'm coming from, where I think we are, and, and, and recite the 20 lessons in a way that I hope that's useful and leave plenty of time for us to talk and for me to learn, to, for me to learn from you. So what, what is the book? Um, the book on tyranny is a political pamphlet in what I take to be the American style. It's, it's a defense of democracy, but not democracy in the sense of saying the word democracy over and over and over again. Um, we Americans have a certain tendency to think that if you pronounce the words democracy and freedom often enough, you live in a free country which is a democracy. And unfortunately, it's not that simple. Um, and really saying the words over and over again can distract us from what's actually going on. So it's a defense of democracy. What is democracy? Democracy is the ability to get things wrong over and over again. Democracy is the recognition that none of us is perfect, that all of us are constantly learning. Democracy is the luxury of electing someone and then blaming him or her for one's own mistake and then doing it over and over again. Democracy is the way that a state, a republic, creates time because the meaning of each election is the knowledge that there's going to be another one. So the American Constitution, the way that it's set up is that we have a republic where we have democratic elections. Those democratic elections are a vent and a channel for the mistakes that we all make. And they're an assurance that the republic can keep going. So what the book is, is an appeal to our reason about the ways that we're unreasonable, which I take it to be, which I take to be the essence of where the founding fathers started. And that's where the, that's where the book starts too. The Founding Fathers were not American exceptionalists. How could they be? There was no America. Um, there was no particular reason that we were going to be exceptional. On the contrary, if you read their correspondence, they were racked with worry. They were concerned lest this new republic which they were trying to found become a tyranny which is their word. It's a very, it's a, it's a nice Greek word. There are lots of nice Greek words which we can use today. Another one is oligarchy. Um, there are good reasons why some of these classical Greek words are coming back. The founding fathers were concerned about the future of the American Republic because they expected, in fact, they thought it was natural that demagogues and tyrants would regularly try to seize control. 
One of the funny things about the American political discussion is that we constantly invoke the founding fathers and we, we ask, what would they do today? And I think I know the answer. I mean, aside from the fact that they would be zombies or mummies or some other form of like unpleasant, undead thing, right? Which no one ever seems to take into account. We imagine that they would like spring up and like finely pressed 18th century outcome. But no, I mean, you have to believe in some kind of magic of the undead to imagine that the founders are coming back. But abstracting away from that, I think their first reaction these zombies, these mummies, our founding fathers, their first reaction would be astonishment that the American Republic still exists, frankly. I think that would be their first reaction. And I think that is the, that's the right and the humble perspective to begin from. There is no particular reason to be American exceptionalists if the founding fathers themselves were trying to set out the best possible guidelines to keep the Republic going. Now, I don't mean to lay too heavy a charge on you. Um, I think this is just the way things are, and my saying it or not doesn't make any difference. It, th these children who you are teaching, these children who are born in 2000 and onwards, and, and you, whom you are teaching, it is these people who are going to be deciding whether America is still a republic. Um, th those are the stakes. That is where we are now. There is no particular reason to think America will be a republic 250 years after the Declaration of Independence. There's been an awful lot of good luck involved, and there are good reasons to think that now is a particularly dangerous time. Okay, what, is danger, what does danger look like? When the Founding Fathers wrote the Constitution, debated the Constitution, th they were concerned with the fallibility of democracy and of republics. Their examples of democracy and republics were the classical ones. Um, they, they knew that democracy failed spectacularly in ancient Athens. They knew that the Roman Republic became um, the Roman Empire. Uh, if, you, if you look away from Venice and the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, those classical examples were the examples that they had. So their, their beginning impulse, their initial, their, their initial assumption was precisely, we have to find the guidelines, we have to find the institutions, what we call the checks and balances to keep a republic going. What I do in the book is I ask about the dangers that have arisen since. We have a couple centuries more experience with democracies and with republics than the founding fathers had. That's the good news. We have much more to learn from people who are much more like us. The bad news is that most of those democracies and republics also failed, some of them in spectacular ways. So what I try to do in this book is apply the method of the Founding Fathers, that is a certain skepticism about us, a skepticism about any form of exceptionalism, I try to apply that method to the intervening 200 years and ask why democracies and republics fail, and more importantly, ask what it is that we can do about it to prevent our own republic from, from failing. So the first lesson in the book, um, the, I wasn't actually checking my notes to see what the first lesson was. I know what the first lesson was <laughs> in the book. Um, the, 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 the first, it's just a, a theatrical thing I do. Um, you know, the glasses, like, the, the first, the, the first, <laughs> right, you're teachers, you know it's true, yeah. <laughs> um, the, uh, the, 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 first, the first lesson in the book, the lesson of lessons, the master lesson, um, is don't obey in advance. This is, this is the first lesson because this is one of the things which historians of 1933, historians of Hitler's rise to power, historians of how the Weimar Republic in Germany became the Third Reich, this is one of the things on which we agree. And I would stress there are actually not that many things that historians of Nazi Germany agree about. It's not a particularly harmonious bunch of people in general, those historians of Nazism. And, and, and the Holocaust, their conferences are much less well-spirited and happy than yours are, I can assure you. Um, so, but the one thing that they do agree about is this, um, this idea that obedience in advance was crucial for Hitler's rise to power. Now, what does that mean? When we think about Hitler or Stalin, for that matter, any dictator, we have a tendency to look at them filmically to see a kind of supervillain with superpowers who just arrives on the stage fully clothed in the ability to destroy democracies and destroy lives. That is not how it happens, of course. It happens politically. And to understand the politics, one has to understand consent. Hitler in 1933 gained consent from very large numbers 
of Germans. Um, I don't mean this just in terms of elections, although elections are very important. I mean that as the system changed, people looked away. Uh, they looked away from the, the, the swastikas and the stars of David. They looked away from the people who they knew were going to be targeted. By consent, I don't mean active consent. I mean normalizing. I mean taking for granted that something has changed, which you know perfectly well should not change, but allowing it to change anyway. This is something that we now no, this is something we now understand about 1933. And this has political implications and moral implications. The, the political implication is it matters a lot what you do at the beginning. So the freedom that one exercises in the first 6, 12, 18 months after a regime change is, is underway matter a lot. If you choose not to do anything in the first 6, 12, 18 months, you then find yourself in a situation where you can't do anything or where the costs of doing anything are much higher than they had been before. I'll give you the example of protest. If you're an American citizen, the costs or the risks of protesting now are essentially zero. However, once protest becomes illegal, as it does and as it can in this country too, then very few of us will actually do it, which means that if you're thinking about protest, it makes sense to do it in the beginning. Perhaps more importantly is the moral lesson. If you don't, if you do obey in advance, if you normalize, if you say manana, if you say, I'm going to wait till my friends do something, I'm going to wait till I'm sure, um, I'm going to wait till everybody around me is doing something. Once you do that, then you become that person. You become the person who rationalizes why he or she didn't do something. And then six months in or 12 months in where we are now, then you have to tell yourself and therefore others why it was okay not to have done anything. And this is a debate which is already taking place in American public life now where people are saying, well, it's fine that I didn't do anything because look, nothing's really happening, right? So your decision to do or not to do something at the beginning changes, changes you morally, changes you, changes you on the inside. So the, the first lesson, don't obey in advance, is the master lesson because if one passes that lesson, the remaining 19 are possible. But if one fails that one, essentially nothing is possible. It's, it's that important. Lesson number two is, is defend institutions. So by institu and in this lesson, as in many of the others, I have in mind both the traditional teachings about American constitutional traditions and what we learned from the 20th century. So by defend institutions, I mean, of course, the American constitutional institutions, which God knows need help, um, the, the courts, um, the legislature. But I also mean things like civil society organizations, like you, which create the space between the lonely individual and the all-powerful state. In, in, again, we have, a, we have a tendency to look at freedom in a kind of Hollywood way, where we imagine that the, 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 what freedom means is that the lonely individual, at the last moment in the film, makes a defiant stand against the tanks, right? Against the all-powerful government, or mainly against, or maybe against the aliens, Right? or the aliens who were invited by the all-powerful government, or whatever it is, right? We imagine that lonely individual making a stand, which is a beautiful image, but it doesn't really happen, and when it does happen, it obviously doesn't work, right? The picture at Tiananmen is beautiful, but that man did not actually stop those tanks, um, and, and, and China is still what China is. For people to be free, they can't be lonely. By the time the government gets its row of tanks lined up against a single individual, the game is already over. Um, this is something that I, that, that I learned precisely as a historian of the Holocaust. We celebrate rescuers in the Holocaust, those individuals who in impossible conditions or nearly impossible conditions did extraordinarily ethical things. And we are right to celebrate those individuals. But the basic lesson of the Holocaust is by the time you get to the situation, where one individual is sheltering another individual in a basement, the Holocaust has already happened, right? So you can, we, we can and must celebrate the individuals who are extraordinary, um, but what we, we have to understand is that freedom doesn't really look like that, not for most of us. For most of us, freedom looks like having people with whom one can talk, being reassured, doing things together, that freedom is not just freedom of association, that freedom is, is association. And to this comes a third kind of, the third kind of institution, which is the professional institution. 
I'll give, I'll give you a dramatic example from Nazi Germany. Um, a concentration camp. A concentration camp only exists because there are businessmen seeking cheap labor. It only exists because there are physicians willing to work there. And it only exists because people with law degrees are willing to join the SS. Without those three groups of professionals, the concentration camp is senseless and, and impossible. So it's very important how lawyers, doctors, businessmen, bureaucrats, teachers, see themselves, whether they see themselves as having a particular professional ethic, um, which is different from whatever the politics of the day are, and different from how we feel as lonely individuals. Because if there is that ethic, then that ethic creates a barrier, creates space between the individual and, and the center, and the, and the power of the center, and it creates possibilities for, for action. It also sets an example, which is so terribly important. So that's lesson number two. So that's, what, that's on tyranny. Those are the first two lessons. I just noticed you up there. Hi. Um, hey. Um, the, the, those are the first two examples. Um, where is this book coming from? I've already betrayed a lot of this. But the, the, it's coming, first of all, from the history that I lived in. Until the last year or so, I didn't spend very much time speaking in English, talking to Americans about America. That's been a big change for me. For the previous 15 years, I spent most of my mental time reading in German or Yiddish or Polish or Russian or whatever it might be, trying to figure out the Soviet Union, trying to figure out Nazi Germany, trying to understand the Holocaust, Stalinist terror. That's what I did. And since, and since that for me is real, the it in can it happen here is, of course, Real. I take it for granted that the it can happen because the it, the it did happen. And to people who are not so far away from us and not so different from us, an easy move to make, considering Nazi Germany especially, is to say, well, they were all, you know, they were all barbarians or they were all Germans or they were all anti-Semites or they were all something, something that was different from us. But it's not, that, I think that's the wrong move to make. I would suggest another move, asking in what ways Germans of the 1930s were perhaps superior to us. They had better newspapers, they read more books, they had longer attention spans. It's not like they were worse than us in every respect. It's not that we can just dismiss them as being inhuman or somehow so fundamentally different from us. And indeed, to push the point a little bit further, Germans in the 1930s were not so terribly different from Americans in the 1930s. It's taken decades for Americans even to pose the questions in their own museums about why the United States of America didn't take Jews in the 1930s, a question which is so direct and so simple, but basically impossible for us even to ask. Right? So I think the move has to be not to say we're so different from these people, but to, to ask in what ways are we the same, or similar, or vulnerable, or to put, turn it around again, what can we learn from the best of these people? Which is the narrative line that the book itself follows. The people, the, the, if there's wisdom in this book, it's not my wisdom. It's the wisdom of people like Viktor Klemper or Hannah Arendt or on the communist side of things, Václav Havel. People who lived through all of this and then left behind essays or books about how one can live and how one can perhaps get out. And it's only really now, I have to say, that I understand why they did this, why they wrote for the drawer. They weren't writing for themselves or for their families or for their friends. So the texts that I'm citing in this book weren't read by anybody at the time. They didn't make any difference at the time. Where they make a difference is later. It's only really now that I've understood the generosity of all of that, but the generosity of someone who was a Jew in Berlin or who was a communist dissident who took the trouble to write the carefully crafted book. That was generosity for the future. It didn't matter at the time at all, but it matters to us if we choose to follow it. Um, and that's what I'm trying to do. That's what I'm trying to do in the book. So anyway, the point of all that is I take it for granted that the it can happen because the it did happen. The other place this book is coming from is from my teachers, precisely my, my teachers. So I'm a historian of Eastern Europe which means that my teachers in Eastern Europe were people who lived through communism, and in the case of some of them, people who lived through National Socialism, lived through the German occupation of Poland, um, were Holocaust survivors in Warsaw. And this is very important, because if those are my teachers and, and I can talk to you, which I, which I can, that means it's people like us, right? It's all people like us. That was their life. That is their life. If they can teach me and we can talk to each other, it's all, it's all one circle. So the it can happen 
and the it does happen, and it did happen to people like us. The, the, third, play, the third place I'm coming from is from my own students. So I'm, I'm, I'm not as old as I pretend to be, but I am, I am old enough to have a generation of students, and those students are people oftentimes from Eastern Europe, from Russia, from Ukraine, from Poland, from Hungary. And if you think about that demographic, those people who were born in the early 90s, say, or the mid-90s, late 90s, who are, who, are now, who are now students, now graduate students, what has their life been like? Has their life seen the fulfillment of this promise after 1989 that freedom was going to come, um, that they were going to have democracies? No. It's exactly the opposite. If you were born then uh, in Russia, Ukraine, Poland, Hungary, in general, it's been the opposite. Freedom has been receding. Your life of growing up in this has very often been a life of protest. In the case of some of my students, it's been a life of oppression, it's been a life of beatings, a life of torture, a life of detention during war, and in some cases, unfortunately, a life of murder. What's the point there? The point there is that it's happening now, right? The it can happen, it happens to people like us, and that it is happening now. The things that we see, feel, and experience in the United States are part of a much larger phenomenon, which includes um, our friends and colleagues in, in Europe, our friends and colleagues in Russia. So that's also where I'm coming from. I'm trying to learn from my students. Many of the terms and many of the arguments in the book come from things that were experienced by my own students, people who are in their 20s now, in this it which is happening now. Okay, which brings me to, to, lesson, to lesson number three. Beware the one-party state. So in, in the US tradition, uh, we associate the one-party state with communism. For those of us who remember the Cold War, which is fewer Americans than I would have thought, let's say. Um, I mean, even those of us who live through it have a tendency, I think, to forget it. But in the Cold War, the objection to communism, maybe the biggest objection to communism, was that it was a one-party state. So let's just take for granted that a one-party state is a bad thing. And then let's remind ourselves that a one-party state is a, is a strong is a strong temptation in any republic. Most, most dictatorships, most authoritarian regimes that exist now took place after elections. The transition begins with an election. And it's very difficult to say at exactly which point you're no longer a democracy or no longer a republic. But at some point, you're well over on the other side and it's clear that you're not, right? Russia still has elections. There'll be an election in Russia this March, but Russia's not a democracy. Hungary still has elections, but Hungary is no longer meaningfully a republic. We still have elections, and we are hovering. We are hovering. We are much, we are much closer to this divide than we would like to think. There are problems that are inbuilt to the Constitution, like um, the weird way that we number senators, like the Electoral College. There are problems that are enabled by the Constitution, like gerrymandering, which is a very serious problem. It doesn't matter which party you're in favor of. It matters, though, that in Ohio, if you vote for one party, your vote counts for half as much. It matters if you're in North Carolina, your vote counts for a quarter as much. Right? That's a problem within the system. And if one wants to know what a one-party system in the United States would look like, all one has to do is look at North Carolina today where a majority of the inhabitants of that state voted for, vote for one party, and yet the other party has total and apparently unbreakable control over the government. That can happen. It's already happening. In addition to those problems built into the Constitution, we have the, we have the additional problems chosen by ourselves um, or chosen by our Supreme Court in the last decade, like the invitation to inject unlimited amounts of money into the elections, and also in 2013, um, the invitation to return to voter suppression laws, which since the Supreme Court decision in 2013, 22, um, 22, 22 American states have done. Right? So we are, we are hovering. We're not a one-party state. But it's, 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 a, it's a mistake to imagine that we couldn't be. And this is the kind of thing, by the way, that one can teach. Having a democracy or having a republic is not something that you inherit. The founding fathers were right to think that the, 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 the centrifugal forces are always going to be away from a democratic republic. The, 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 a democracy and a republic have to be gained generation by generation by generation. 
American democracy is less a reality than, than an aspiration, which means that how we behave or how our students behave not only will be decisive in this generation, it's actually decisive in, in all generations. Lesson number four, take responsibility for the face of the world. This is another one that we have very closely from the history of the 1930s, both on the Nazi side and on the Soviet side. It turns out that propaganda matters hugely. It turns out that simple things like whether there's a swastika in a public place, um, and if you live in this part of the world, you know that even in our part of the world, there are more swastikas in public places now than there were a year ago. And the reason there are not even more is that people in an organized or less organized way go from bridge to bridge or building to building and paint over them all the time. That now happens in New England, that now happens in New York City, that now happens in New York State. Um, and when you do that, you're making a difference. One of the things that we've learned from 1993 is that it, it matters whether people see swastikas day after day or not. That the, that, the, that the face of what the face of what the world looks like is a kind of subliminal instruction as to what's possible tomorrow. And so engaging with that face of the world, and of course you know this because you're in charge of classrooms and you think about this all the time, but engaging with the face of the world turns out to matter a lot. Um, number, number five, um, remember professional ethics. I already talked about this one. That it matters whether people who are teachers or engineers or, or, um, or civil servants think about themselves as belonging to a group which has a collective ethic and what that collective ethic actually, actually means. I mean, for me, the, law, I, the, the lawyers are the ones I obsess about. Most of, the, most of the commanders of the Einsatzgruppen in 1941 who began the Holocaust during the invasion of the Soviet Union had advanced law degrees. Most of them, most of them. Um, the lawyers of Germany in the 1930s found ways to think about race as law. They, they found these ways, right? And they're not the only ones who are capable of such things. And so I see what American lawyers are doing, and I think, wow, some of this is really remarkable. Not all of it. Perjuring yourself in your confirmation hearings is not so remarkable. But there are things that American lawyers are doing which are, which are remarkable. And they can only do it as a certain kind of profession. Just like there are things that you can only do as, as examples of a certain kind of profession. Lesson six, be wary of paramilitaries. Lesson seven, be reflective if you must be armed. These are lessons about how, um, how the nature of violence changes. So um, in, in, a traditional, in a traditional state, say Germany in 1932, or us now, the state has a monopoly on violence. The way that this changes, or one way that this changes, is that paramilitary groups emerge and are granted some kind of official recognition. It's, that's what the SA, the SA, or the SS were in Germany. You, you begin as a group which is beyond the state, but then you gain some kind of official recognition. This is something, of course, to watch for in the United States, because paramilitaries we have armed paramilitaries we have. The crucial question is, do they start to support the state, and does the state start to support them? Lesson number eight is, is stand out. In lesson eight, I use, I use a European example. It's one of the few places where I mention the US. The European example is Winston Churchill. Now, we might think, well, of course the British fought in the Second World War. But most of them didn't want to. Most of them wanted to give up in 1940. What was the point? Why should they be? They'd already lost. Why should, they, why should they keep fighting? What did they have to gain on the continent? What was in it for them? That's what most of them thought. Churchill was in a political minority who thought otherwise. Had it not been for Winston Churchill, the British would not have stayed in that war. Had the British not stayed in that war, there would have been no occasion for the United States of America to enter into that war. The American preparations for that war had everything to do with supporting the British. If the British weren't in the war, it's very difficult to see how the Americans could have entered the war, right? And so because of one man's actions and speeches, our whole history, not just the British, but the entirety of American history is different. Because how would we think about ourselves today had America first prevailed? Most Americans didn't want to enter that war either, right? Um, it, took, it took Roosevelt, and it took certain kinds of arguments, and it took the bombing of an American military base, naval base in Hawaii. It took a lot to get Americans to enter that war. And yet how we think about ourselves today has an awful lot to do with the notion that that's the sort of thing that we do. But we almost didn't do it. If it hadn't been for a few individuals who took unusual positions, we wouldn't have done it. 
America First would have prevailed, which it still might, America First would have prevailed, and we would think about ourselves very differently. The American example, it's the only American example in the book, is, is, is Rosa Parks. But the reason, why, the reason why stand out is so important, and you'll know this because you have to do it every day, the reason why stand out is so important is that freedom is not automatic. Freedom is uncomfortable. We talk about freedom all the time, but if you feel comfortable, you're not a free person. Um, if you feel comfortable, that means you're following the political and social cues of everybody else around you. That's many things. It can be politeness, um, but it's not freedom. Freedom means the ability to feel uncomfortable on a regular basis because you're doing something which is slightly different from what your peers and your colleagues and everyone around you is doing. Because you're doing something which is not sanctioned by whatever internet you just read, which is not sanctioned by whatever media is around you, but which is just you. And that's a lot harder than it sounds, and it always feels weird. It always feels weird. Freedom feels strange. And that, this is why the standing out is the same thing as the freedom. If, you don't have, if we don't have the habit of doing things which are a little bit unusual, which come from ourselves and nowhere else, then we're not free as individuals, and there's not much chance that we're going to be free as a nation. OK, number third point. What do I think, what do I think is going on? Um, and this is where history becomes, I think, so terribly important. I'm just going to give you a few minutes about what I think is happening in the world and in the US. Um, what I think is happening has everything to do with the loss of history. What do I mean by history? What I mean by history is believing that there was a past, believing that studying the past teaches us about structures of what's possible and what's not, that knowing about the past gives us a sense of how free we can be today. There are some limitations. We know about the limitations because you know about the past. But the moment you know what the limitations are, you also know what's possible. So in that sense, history is a condition of learning about the past. Having some sense of the past is a condition of having a future. If you don't have a sense of the structures that are already here, it's very difficult to think about how those structures might be changed by, by your own action. Why is that so important? That's so important, I think, because the ways that we're, we are thinking about the past um, now crowd that out. Um, one way that we have been thinking about the past in this country in the last 25 years, and I think it's done terrible damage, is what I would call the politics of inevitability. The idea that there's one track of history and we know where it's going. We know how the past leads to the future. There are many versions of this. Um, there's the Marxist version, which if we hear the Marxist version, we all shake our heads and say, you know, that's crazy. But the, the, the market version is just as crazy. The idea that uh, nature leads to markets and markets leads to democracy and everything's going to be fine. That's bananas, right? It's not, it's not empirically true. It's comfortable to think that there's an invisible hand of history which leads things along to, sort, to some approvable destination, but there's absolutely no reason to believe that that's the case, and plenty of reasons to believe that it's not true. Um, Russia in 1991, or Iraq in 2003, or America now. Um, it, there is no particular reason to think that just letting things go is going to turn us all into democratic republics. But that's what we got ourselves convinced to think. And that way of thinking isn't just wrong. It has massive consequences. Um, one consequence is that it clears out responsibility. If we think nature leads to markets, leads to democracy, then what do I have to do? What do you have? Nobody has to do anything because there are these larger historical forces, supposedly, which there aren't. Um, if, if, we think that, if we think that history is just on a track and the future has to be the way that it's going to be, if we think there are no alternatives, it also clears out all the facts, which I'm afraid is something which has happened in the last 25 years. You can stand up after this lecture and correct me. But it's astonishing to me how much less we know about American and European history than we did 25 years ago um, when I started engaging with it. And one of the reasons is, if you think you know the way history is going, if there are no alternatives, there's no point knowing all this detail, right? What's the detail for if you know the way things are going? Another thing which happens is that this confidence, this faith, um, leads to a certain naivete about the truth. If you think that there are no alternatives, then you imagine that, well, whatever people read on the internet, it's all going to sort itself out in the end. We're all going to figure it out. We're all reasonable people. That doesn't happen 
right? That's just not the case. Um, that's, it, it, it matters a great deal whether people are instructed in some kind of more or less coherent way about the present and the past. It is just not the case that the jungle of information or anti-information naturally sorts itself out into knowledge. Doesn't, it doesn't happen. If anything, it's the opposite. And then maybe most powerfully is the inequality. What we've done in the US in the last 25 years is to perform an experiment, which is to say, what will happen if we allow levels of economic inequality in this country to reach exactly what they were in 1929? What's going to happen then? That's what we did. We crossed 1929 and 2013. We're now worse. What's going to happen then? What happens is that individual by individual, family by family, Appalachian town by Appalachian town, Appalachian Valley by Appalachian Valley, and then broader out to the rest of the United States, people stop believing in the future. That's what happens. People start thinking only in terms of the present. They don't believe any story of progress, and they don't believe there's anything they can do. And that leads them to certain kinds of political and social behavior, right? And that is, that is, where, that is where we are. Um, we have this extreme inequality in the United States, in part because we believe that if we just let things go, history, there are no alternatives, everything's gonna be fine. What happens then, is that this one false way about thinking about the past gives way to another false way, which I call the politics of eternity. In the politics of eternity, something happens in the past, but it's always the same thing. The same thing which happens over and over again is that we, the innocent, are attacked by they, the malevolent, over and over and over again. It's all a cycle, right? The same thing happens over again. Whether it's the immigrants or the Chinese, it doesn't matter who it is. In this way of thinking about the past, we are innocent, the others are attacking us, we're innocent by definition, they're malevolent by definition, and that's it. And it's just a loop, a loop. And in that loop, again, you have no responsibility and you don't need to know anything, right? And this is why this gives way to this. I will, get, I will now, since I'm from Yale, I'm gonna give a Harvard example, which I very much like. When I was talking about, when I was talking, which, when I was which I usually say for Cambridge, but I'm going I'm to give it to, to you too. When, when, um, when I was talking about this book about 10 months ago at Harvard, and a really good session with a bunch of undergraduates, and, and, and uh, we're getting to the end, and one of them was kind of looking at his watch, and so I said, so, you know, what's up? And he said, well, Goldman is recruiting in about, in, in about half an hour. Um, and I said, okay, um, here's how I'm going to explain the politics of inevitability and the politics of eternity to you. Up until November, you thought, that is you Harvard undergraduates who are going to go interview with Goldman, you thought everything's going fine, therefore I can go work on Wall Street. Now you think everything's going to hell, therefore I can go work on Wall Street. Right? That's it. That's, that is inevitability shifting into eternity. And you skip right over the thing where you stop and ask, well, what, what do I know about the past? What responsibility do I bear for the present and the future. And the way, that, the way this looks in politics is that politics stops being about what the government can do for citizens in the immediate future and starts being about just reinforcing these various loops of hostility. I'll give you a funny example and a less funny example. Make America great again. If you were going to make America great again, you would have to know when America was great. When was America great? The social scientists, with their customary persistence, have figured this out. There have been a bunch of surveys about this. America was great, according to us, according to American citizens, America was great when we were teenagers. That's the answer. That's not the answer teenagers give, but it's the answer that everybody else gives. Right? So if you ask Americans when America was great, they name a year when they were young. That's it. Now, one can agree or disagree about how much power the government actually has, but one thing government cannot do, again, is make us young. That can't happen. And this is funny, but it's also symptomatic because the way the politics of eternity works is that you set fictional problems that government cannot actually solve. But, and then the fact that government can't solve them is precisely the source of the endless energy which makes the cycle go round and round and round. Here comes the less funny example. Um, it's possible that a majority of whites now believe that racism against whites is a bigger problem in the US than racism against blacks. It's certain that a very large majority of white Trump voters believe that, that racism against whites is a bigger problem than racism against blacks. If you believe that, government cannot solve your problem because that is a fictional problem, right? But what government can do is that it can over and over and over again reinforce you in that view by referring to African-Americans as sons of bitches, for example. Government can reinforce you in that view over and over and over again. And so what happens when you, 
when you shift to the politics of eternity, is the government stops being about doing anything and starts and, and, and begins and begins to be just about being, about reinforcing you is in who you are. And notice, I mean, no one actually expects, whether you're a Republican or Democrat or whatever you might be, no one actually expects in 2017 that the government's going to undertake any meaningful policy. We've already shifted into that. We agree that that's not going to happen. Um, I mean, we might agree or disagree about whether that's a good thing, but we, we basically do not expect government to do anything, right? We've, shift, we've shifted very fast. That's what, that's what it looks like. So that's what, that's what I think is going on. Now, coming back to history, what that suggests intellectually is that thinking of yourself as a person in history who has some sense of the past matters as politically, almost automatically, that, that history itself becomes a kind of political thought. Because if you believe in history, then you think, well, there are some things I can do and not do, and I'm going to choose which one of those things I'm going to do. If you think about, it, if you think about the past in terms of inevitability, you think, well, everything's going fine. If you think about it in terms of eternity, you think, well, those other people are bad, and the same thing happens over and over again. If you, if you have one of those or the other, you're not a historical agent. You're not acting in time. You're not a citizen. You're not, you're not a citizen. The, the, the only way to exist as a citizen, I think, is to think historically and to get between these two ways of thinking about time, not to yield to the idea that everything's going to be fine, which I, admittedly fewer and fewer people believe, and also not to yield to the idea that it has to be this way. It has to just be the innocent us and the guilty them over and over and over again. This is very powerful, by the way, and this is also how the internet works. Right? What the internet does to you is the internet draws you into a world where you can't solve problems, right? When was the last time you actually solved the problem? I'll say Facebook, because you're a demographic who probably uses Facebook. Whenever I mention Facebook to actual students, I tell them what it is, right? Because they don't, they don't know, they don't use it. Um, no, it's an, I mean, no, it's actually, I mean, the plat platforms are very generationally stratified. Right? So, but, but you don't actually solve problems on Facebook. But what, you, what Facebook does is that it reminds you who you are and what you're outraged about and who your friends are and who your enemies are. And at the end of it, you're exhausted as though you've done something, but you haven't done a goddamn thing. Right? <laughs> That's what the internet does to you. And then that pattern of feeling and thinking about the world shifts over into the real world. Right? And we begin to think that, well, the only thing that matters in the real world is knowing who's on our side and who's on the other side and what to be outraged about today or what to be outraged about 15 minutes ago, what we're going to be outraged about 15 minutes from now. That's being, but it's not, but it's not doing. Right? And that's what the internet does to us. Okay. So the, the, the next few lessons are, are then all about what it means to be a historical agent and what it means to act in history. And they're, very, they're very, apparently very simple and small things like um, number nine, be kind to our language. Now, this is one which is, I think, extremely important for all of us who teach, because being kind to the language is also, also creates politics. What do I mean by that? We are flooded, and our children more than we are flooded, overwhelmed with cliche after cliche tailored to the moment, tailored to the day, tailored to your personality even, if you spend time on the internet. It's cliche after cliche bombards you over and over and over and over again. And when responding to the cliches, it's very hard not to use them. Even if you think you're against something, it's very hard not to use the language um, to think you're turning the language against, right? So, the so Mr. Trump, for example, talks about winning a lot. Um, and, you know, which, of course, when I hear winning, I think, of, I think of Zig Heil, but that may be a personal thing. But he talks, about, he talks about winning a lot. And then people respond to him by making fun of winning and like saying, oh, is that a win? You know, was that winning? But the thing is, when you use the language, you're limiting yourself to, you're, you're, accepting, the, 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 you're accepting the frame of reference. You're accepting the rules of engagement. The only way actually to talk about the moment you're in is not to be in that moment. And the only way not to be in that moment is to read books, right? The only way, to, the only way not, to recycle the, not to recycle the news cycle, the only way not to reproduce the internet is to read books, is to have sources of the English language or whatever language which come from somewhere else. And that way, with yourself and with other people, you can talk about something um, in the, in the literal sense of talking about it, right? Talking about something means being able to get around it, as opposed to just being in it, as opposed to just reproducing the terms. Anyway, I'm sure you all understand this because you're teachers, but it strikes me as being extremely important. I mean, to take a trivial example, um, George Orwell in 1984 
give us a few terms that we can use to talk about the present moment. That's the simplest, most you know, brutal, most straightforward way. But in general, I mean, reading Jane Eyre or reading Tale of Two Cities or anything gives people a broader, richer spoken language which they can then use to talk. Um, and, and this is a point that Orwell made. The smaller, the smaller the active vocabulary in public discussion, the less we can actually think about, about what's possible, right? So, so being kind to language is about creating, creating politics. Number 10 is, is, believe, in, is believe in truth. Um, and and number, number 11 is investigate. So this business of truth, like talk about doing things that make you feel uncomfortable, like being an academic and staying up and saying believe in truth, right? That's like being a dentist and saying brush your teeth, which is also a good idea, by the way, you know, brush your teeth. Um, but the, 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 the believe in truth is politically very, very important. Uh, because Why? Historically, communism and fascism do away with truth in different ways. The fascists say it doesn't matter what's actually happening. The only truth is the unity of the people or the unity of the people with the leader. The communists say it doesn't matter what's actually happening right now. It's okay to lie about what's happening right now because the only good thing is some future utopia. But either way, the facts as we experience them don't matter. Postmodern authoritarians, from Russia to the US, no longer have a vision about how things are going to be better, but they, they, they nevertheless attack the truth just as systematically, and they do it this way. They say, first thing they do is they lie all the time, and they don't apologize. And it's that lack of apology which is crucial, because if you apologize for making a mistake or for lying, you are acknowledging that there is such a thing as the truth, which is why someone like Mr. Putin or someone like Mr. Trump never apologize for a mistake or for a lie. It's because they, what they're doing is they're advancing the idea that there is no truth. That's what it's all about. So the first thing you do is you lie all the time and you never apologize. The second thing that you do is that you pick on the civil society activists, the scholars, and especially the journalists, the people whose job it is to actually pursue the facts, and you say, well, it's they who are the liars, right? It's they who are the purveyors of fake news. And fake news, by the way, like the other day, Mr. Trump, praised himself for introducing the idea of fake news. He didn't. It's been in Russian for 10 years. That not only the practice, but the term actually comes from the Russian language, like so much of what we have in America today. So, um, so, the, so the first thing is you lie all the time. The second thing is you blame the people who are looking for the truth. And the third thing is you rejoice and you govern within the resulting confusion. Because if there isn't truth, then it's impossible to trust anyone else. It's impossible to organize. It's impossible to have the rule of law. It's impossible to resist because you, can't, you don't know what you're resisting. Um, it's impossible to think about what would be better because you, you're, you're unable to communicate with others about, about where you are. So giving up on factuality, and this is, a, this is a mistake that I believe a lot of people on the American left have made, giving up on factuality inevitably helps tyranny. tyranny because it, it's going to be the tyrant who is going to have the best spectacle. Because if you say, well, there aren't really facts or we're not really sure, then basically it comes down to sonography. It comes down to who has the best spectacle. And the people who have the best spectacle are going to be the people who have the money, who have the media, who are maybe already president of the United States. Right? So the truth is, the truth is really important. Um, number 12 is the one that's perhaps aroused the most comment, which is make eye contact and, and small talk, which is very simple. Um, and the idea of making eye contact and small talk is that that's the only way to bring people back into reality. So I've had a lot of really fruitless conversations where I convinced nobody about American politics, but I'm glad I had them because in some cases, I'm still in touch with those people. And in all cases, or at least in most of them, they now have to, they accept that I'm a human being, which if they interacted with me over Facebook, um, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't do, right? I mean, it's hard to convince people in real life and I think we've kind of succumbed to this idea that we need instant gratification, that if I don't convince you in one conversation, therefore it wasn't worth it. But you never, it was never true that we convinced people of one conversation. I mean, think of your significant other. When was the last time you convinced your significant other of anything in one conversation, right? And if that doesn't happen with your family or you know, with your friends, why would it happen with a stranger? It doesn't. That's not the point. What the internet has done to us is it's convinced us that when we send that message out over Facebook, like, oh, like a million people were instantly convinced by, no, right? No one is ever convinced by anyone, ever, online. Um, I mean, think of the last time you saw a Facebook post which said, you have convinced me with your reasonable arguments, 
right? That Facebook post has never appeared <laughs> because no one has ever been convinced on Facebook. But it's con the, the irony of it is that we believe that we're doing all this amazing work, but we're not, in fact. And, 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 we, and we've, 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 our expectations have been raised about what we can achieve. Really, the important thing is just making the contact in the first place. This whole polarization thing. Yeah, opinions in America are polarized. Yeah, Republicans and Democrats no longer want their children to marry each other. That's all real. But if we, yeah, that's what polls show. No, it's like it's reached that point where nearly a majority of Republicans and in, in, in the upper 20s, I think, of, of Democrats don't want their children marrying people of the other party. That's all happening. Um, yeah, it's funny, but it's actually, it's a big problem. The only way around that is to say, I'm gonna, we're all going to talk anyway, as Americans or as human beings. Because if you say, oh, well, like, it's, they're the them. If you say the Republicans are the them, or if the Republicans say the Democrats are the them, then you're immediately in the politics of being, of eternity. You can't do anything that way. If you think the us and them is inside the borders of the United States, you're condemning the United States to never actually having any policy. Because then politics just becomes the various riffs and memes and rhetorical competitions between the us and the them, which is, of course, what's happening in the United States right now. But the, the moment you say they're them and we're us and there's polarization, there's nothing we can do about it, you're saying, I'm giving up on the American Republic. So the small talk is more important than it might, than it, than it might seem. And the eye contact are the simple ways of affirming people in the physical world or of bringing people into the physical world from wherever they actually may dwell. The average American spends seven hours in front of the screen every day. I personally think that if that had been six hours and 45 minutes, the outcome of the last election would have been different. It changes us that we spend more time in front of the screens, right? I mean, when I talk to Christians, you don't have to raise your hand or anything, but when I talk to Christians, I ask, like, when was the last day you spent more time with the Bible than you did with the screen? It's a tough one. When was the last time we spent more time with books than with the screen? When was the last time we spent more time talking to people than on the screen, right? Um, it's, a, it's a tough one. It's a tough one for all of us, but it has real social and political consequences, whether we actually look at each other and talk. Okay. Um, number, number 13, similar. Practice corporeal politics, which sounds weird, I know, but I stole it from a Ukrainian friend. Um, corporeal politics means get your body into places where you aren't usually, with people who you don't know, doing something that you care about. So, um, and the body part is very important because wrenching yourself out of your house or away from your desk or out of your office and getting out into the fresh air and listening to people in real life has, a, has an important refreshing quality. It makes you feel better. It is, even if you're doing good stuff online, if you do it all day, at the end of it, you, you, you almost never feel good, right? Like people very rarely sit up from the internet with a feeling of triumph. Have you noticed that? Like you don't usually get up from the internet and say, hooray, right? You don't feel good about yourself generally. You feel tired, you feel worn out, your eyes are messed up. Um, doing things in the world actually can make you feel better and it makes you feel like you're not alone, which is incredibly, important. I mean, m there are millions of people who share certain basic concerns, but you don't feel that online. You feel it when you actually go into their apartments or you go on a march with them or, or, whatever, or whatever it might be. And this, like so many other things, is also a survival strategy. One of the things that Americans you know, do, like this is very American, um, it would be charming if it weren't so distressing, is to say, well, like, okay, well, like I was resisting for two weeks, but now I'm tired. Right, you know, which, which my first response is like, okay, you know, white people are not allowed to say that <laughs> because you know there are other folks who've been trying to get the vote for a couple of centuries now. Um, so you're not allowed to be tired after two weeks. But I mean, but but, but maybe more more even more elementary is if you think that this is an instant gratification kind of deal, then you've already lost, right? If you think it's a matter of like getting likes on Facebook and like waiting for somebody to like your post on Facebook, then you've already lost. If the American Republic is going to be sustained, it's going to be sustained over months, years, decades, which means that not only that we do things, but how we do things matters. So what physical habits we have um, convinces us that we're tired or we're not tired, we can keep going, we can't keep going, and seeing other people makes it easier to keep going, and it avoids that feeling that people have that like, oh, I'm tired. I'm tired, I can't do it anymore, I'm tired. The I'm tired usually comes from spending too much time on the internet and not enough time with, with, with other people. Okay, similarly, um, establish a private life. That seems, I mean, what's a private life? A private life is first of all about totalitarianism. 
So totalitarianism is not that the government has amazing power and can make you do whatever it wants you to do. That's not true. The government can't directly make you do much. But what totalitarianism is about, and this is, this is Hannah Arendt, this is the philosophy of totalitarianism, what totalitarianism is about is not having a difference between your public and your private life. Totalitarianism is when there's no line where you get to go home, you get to be yourself. That's what totalitarianism actually is. And politically, that means that there are things that we should notice that we don't notice. Like if someone, it doesn't matter if it's a government or a private actor, if someone gets into your emails and publishes them, that's not just a problem for you or for Hillary Clinton or for whomever. It's a problem for everyone because it means that we're not respecting the private lives of of other people. And that moment where we're like, we're really interested in what someone else's email says, that's the moment when we are becoming the totalitarians ourselves. That happened in 2016 and we didn't even notice. We didn't even notice. It's not about sides, right? It's just wrong if you believe in individuality for me to be reading your emails or you to be reading my emails. Maybe we can't stop it, but at least it's worth recognizing that there's a kind of principle here. And establishing a private life is about having part of your life which is not vulnerable. It's about having conversations in person. It's about not being online all the time. And when you are, being careful about how you're online. Because if, you, if most of your life is online, and then you think in the back of your mind, yeah, this is all public or potentially public, how can you possibly be doing what you want? You're already censoring yourself, right? You're already censoring yourself. You're already becoming part of the, of the regime change. If you're spending time online and you're thinking, well, I can't do this or I can't do that or I can't say this because someone's going to read it later on, then you're taking part, right? You're taking part. So, so the private life is one of these things which is much more important than it, than it seems to be. Okay, here comes an easy one. Um, contribute to good causes, right? This is, that's an easy one. Um, and the, the, the trick in the book is just to do it regularly. So if you feel like you're worn out or that you're not sure what you're doing is making a difference, if you are just regularly helping other people, then you always can feel like, okay, at least I'm contributing, I'm contributing somehow. What comes next, um, and, 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 then, and then we'll be close to being, to being done. What comes next? Well, I, I've already talked a fair bit about what I think is happening right, right now. Um, where, wh you know, where, where I'm worried is how this politics of eternity entrenches itself in policy. So um, does policy change the world, does the, or does policy make the world more the way that it already is? The, the, the major domestic policies that we've had thus far in the first almost year of the Trump administration are one, the promotion of political fiction, two, tax regression, three, the removal, the removal of health care, and four, a, a blatantly pro-Russian foreign policy. Um, and that last one I want to dwell on for a minute. It's, and then I'll talk about Russia and what Russia has to do with all this. It, it, it doesn't matter that much whether Mr. Trump talks about how much he loves Mr. Putin. I mean, it's admittedly hard to stop him from doing that, but that's not the most important thing. The most important thing, if you happen to care about American power or American values, the most important thing is, do we have diplomats? Because, you know, those F-35s flying over the football stadiums, they're cool. Like, I like the sound like just as much as the next guy, but that's not actually American power. Those planes don't really do very much. What actually American power is are the diplomats, because it's the diplomats who are able to explain what American economic cooperation would look like or what American values allow or don't allow. And what this administration has done is basically declare war on our diplomats, whether that's mocking, um, whether that's mocking the people who are expelled from Moscow or whether that's Mr. Tillerson's plan to cut 10 billion, 10 billion dollars from the Department of State. There are plenty of places in the federal government where you can cut $10 billion and it won't make a difference. The Department of State is not one of those places. You could get rid of a few of those F-35s. It wouldn't actually make a difference. But if you get rid of the Department of State, that makes a difference. And it's already making a difference. That is, that's Russian foreign policy. The second bit of Russian foreign policy is fossil fuels. The entire Russian economy dep depends upon commodity sales. Um, unlike ours, unlike almost anyone else in the Northern Hemisphere, that's the case. Uh, what, what has the Trump administration done? The Trump administration has, in almost a time travel-like way, tried to move us back towards um, a carbon-based economy. That is a pro-Russian foreign policy. That's what it is. The fundaments, the fiction, the anti-diplomacy, 
the, car, the, the carbons. That's all Russia, right? That's, there's nothing in that which is particularly American, but there are things in that which are, which are quite Russian, which, which leads me to, to where we are today, and then we really will be done. So what does Russia have to do with all this? Well, on the one hand, we can tell the story, and in Ottawa it's a comforting story, of how much Russia has to do with the rise of Mr. Trump. Why would that be a comforting story? Because then we could say, well, it's just the Russians, it's not, it's not really us. So we can remind ourselves of certain things. We can remind ourselves that Mr. Trump, to all appearances anyway, is not in fact a successful businessman. Mr. Trump is a creation of mysterious Russian investors who propped up his licensing business, which by the way is a nice business if you can get it, like you just put your name on a building and people give you money, right? The nature of Mr. Trump's deals with Russian investors were that they gave him money and he got out of the way, which is a nice, again, a nice arrangement if you can get it, but I, you know, in my simple like Midwestern way of seeing the world, I tend to think that there are debts that are involved if someone just gives you money, right? And that is what his career has been. Mr. Trump is not a successful real estate developer. Mr. Trump is a failed real estate developer who was bailed out by mysterious Russian investors, which allowed him to play a successful real estate developer on TV, right? Which is not the same thing. He's a, he, he became a fictional character, and that fictional character became the President of the United States. Um, what else do we know? I mean, we know that over the course of, of, of his campaign, he was surrounded by people with very close connections to the Kremlin. He named George Papadopoulos to be his foreign policy advisor, um, who has now pled guilty to lying to the FBI about talking to the Kremlin. He named Carter Page to be his foreign policy advisor at a time when Carter Page was under investigation by the FBI um, because he was being recruited by Russian intelligence. He named Paul Manafort to be his campaign manager right after Paul Manafort literally had to leave under a hail of bullets as his previous pro-Russian client had, was overthrown in, in Ukraine. Right? It, just, it just goes on and on. I mean, when we say that Mr. Tillerson was named um, a friend of, uh, was given the order of friendship by Putin personally, that's just a minor detail compared to much of the rest of it. Our, com our commerce secretary, Go Yale, our commerce secretary um, is, was one of the directors of one of the banks in Cyprus where Russian oligarchs launder their money. It just, it just goes on and on, and they lie about it. Mr. Sessions perjured himself at his confirmation hearings by saying he didn't, had no connections with Russia. Mr. Kushner and Mr. Manafort met with Russians in order to collude um, and, and to, try to, change, to try to change the outcome of the election. There's all, there's all of that. You know, there's Mr. Trump firing Mr. Comey, which is basically like hiring an airplane to pull a sign across Washington, D.C. saying, I'm guilty. I mean, if you fire the person who's investigating you for something, you are saying, that you're guilty, right? Um, and then the next day, he said, that he said as much to his friends. He said, now I fired Mr. Comey, the pressure on the Russian investigation is off. That's what Mr. Trump said to his friends the next day. His friends were the Russian foreign minister and the Russian ambassador to the United States, who he invited to the Oval Office with their digital gear, and that's what he told them, right? It's a very unusual situation. And that's all in the background, because what's in the foreground is the, mas is the massive Russian internet campaign um, to change the information space in the United States to make it more likely that Mr. Trump would be elected, which we're learning more about every day and I think was probably extremely consequential. I'll ask you just to think back to Brexit. In, in the case of Brexit, most of the internet activity, which was read by the British, did not originate in the United Kingdom. That is worth thinking about, right? If Let's say, let's say it's not most. Let's say that it's something like 20%, which is a running estimate right now, of the, of the politically relevant material read by Americans was generated by a foreign power seeking to harm the United States of America. That would be very significant, and that it looks like something like that was in fact the case. So we can say all that. We can say, well, you know, Russia got him elected, and then some, which in my opinion, they almost certainly did. And that in a way can be comfortable, because we can say, well, the problem's not us, the problem is Russia. But no. What the Russians are good at, better than we are, is seeing what our problems are and then operationalizing them. The fact that the Russian campaign worked, and I believe it worked better than they expected. I, don't think they, I, don't, I think even they did not think that Mr. Trump could actually be elected. But the reason why it worked has to do with us. Um, Russia is the most unequal economically, the most unequal state country in the world. It only has one rival. There's, only, there's one country which is pushing up the ranks, getting close to Russia, and that's us. We're all alone with the Russians up there. By some measures, 
we're now crossing them um, in, terms of, in terms of the wealth held by the top 0.1% or top 0.01%. We and the Russians are all alone together on the graph, and the points are at exactly the same place. I don't think that's a coincidence. The Russians got there first. The Russians got to the politics of eternity first. They found a way of managing inequality first. They transformed politics from doing to being first. They did it before we did, and now they're helping us to get where they are. And the reason we are vulnerable to it is that we are already more like them than we think they are. So yeah, the Russians intervened. Yeah, it mattered. But there are reasons why we are susceptible, why so many of us were, were susceptible, which leads, me, which leads me finally back to, to, to history. So um, number, number, the lesson number 19 is, um, is be, be a patriot. And I've just spent several minutes talking about what I think being a patriot doesn't look like. I, I don't think being a patriot involves um, being an instrument of Russian foreign policy. I think that's not patriotic, unless you're Russian, in which case, by all means, it's patriotic. But if you're not, if you're not Russian, being an instrument of Russian foreign policy is not patriotic. And it's sad to say that with Mr. Trump, there are basically two alternatives. Either he is a knowing or an unknowing instrument of Russian foreign policy. There isn't a third option, I don't think. But whatever that is, it's, it's not patriotic. Mr. Trump is, however, a nationalist which is something different, and where I want to close is on the difference between those two things. Um, I will read from this, and then we'll be done. So a nationalist encourages us to be our worst, and then tells us that we are the best. A nationalist, although endlessly brooding on power, victory, defeat, revenge, wrote Orwell, tends to be, quote, uninterested in what happens in the real world, unquote. Nationalism is relativist, since the only truth is the resentment we feel when we contemplate others. As the novelist Danilo Kish put it, nationalism, quote, has no universal values, aesthetic or ethical, unquote. A patriot, by contrast, wants the nation to live up to its ideals, which means asking us to be our best selves. A patriot must be concerned with the real world, which is the only place where his country can be loved and sustained. A patriot has universal values, standards by which he judges his nation, always wishing it well, and wishing that it would do better. Democracy failed in Europe in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, and it is failing not only in much of Europe, but in many parts of the world today. It is that history and experience that reveals to us the dark range of our possible futures. A nationalist will say, it can't happen here, which is the first step towards disaster. A patriot says, it could happen here, but that we will stop it. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this Nice Ace Now podcast. Production support comes from Andrew Cook. Interview and conference support by Judith Sheridan and Barbara Swanson. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. For additional podcasts, as well as information about our conferences and other programming, please visit our website, nysais.org.